Spirit, it's almost like coming out of water after you had to hold your breath, swimming underwater for a little ways, and then coming up for fresh air. I think as you look at the fruit of the Spirit, it will be both convicting and yet very refreshing to know this is what God wants to do in your life if you're a believer in Him. You know, a study was done by an agricultural school in Iowa some years ago. And this is what they found. And they were studying this. How much, how much does it take to produce 100 bushel of corn? How much of different elements does it take to produce 100 bushel of corn in one, on one acre of land? And this is what they found out. It takes 4 million pounds of water just to produce 100 bushel of corn. It takes 3.5 ton of oxygen. I didn't know you could measure oxygen like that, apparently. It's in the illustration. 5,200 pounds of carbon, 160 pounds of nitrogen, 125 pounds of potassium, 75 pounds of sulfur, and goes on and on and on. It takes a lot of different elements, all coordinated properly to produce 100 bushel of corn. In addition to these ingredients are required rain, sunshine at the right times, and although many hours of the farmer's labor are also needed, it was estimated that only 5% of the produce of a farm can be attributed to the efforts of the man. I like that. All this hard work, and it's only like 5% of the process. Everything else is God. Everything else is how God set up this world to actually produce the 100 bushel of corn. See, it's like Corinthians says, God causes the growth. As you look at Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, I want you to remember this. God causes the growth. Let's read that, verse 22. It says, the fruit of the Spirit, again, the third person of the Trinity, God, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such, there is no law. The reason he brings up laws, remember Galatians is talking about the things that they thought that could be accomplished through the law. And he's saying, listen, you can't get these fruit by the law. God causes the growth. We really have to get this through our minds, that God causes the growth. God causes the fruit. Now again, we were looking in a contrast fashion in verse 19 to the works of the flesh. What does the flesh want to produce? And again, it's almost like peering into hell. All the sin and sensuality and sexual sins and selfish sins. Idolatry and hatred and contentions and ambitions and dissensions and all the garbage. That's what the, the sin force wants to produce. But, verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit is... By the way, notice it's the fruit, not the gift. By the way, it is given by the Spirit, but we're not talking about the spiritual gifts here. You know, the spiritual gifts like you find in 1 Corinthians 12... Uh, the gift of teaching, the gift of exhortation, the gift of mercy, the gift of helps. If, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, at the moment of your salvation, you were given a gift. And that gift, like in Corinthians 12, is, is supposed to be used to serve one another. But that's not what we're talking about when we're saying fruit. The gifts are used for one another's. 
But this is something that the Spirit does in your own individual life. This is the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, Notice also that it's in the singular, whereas in verse 19 it was the works, plural of the flesh, individual sins. By the way, no individual would probably do all those sins found in verses 19 to to 21, 19 to 21, all at once, but they're individual sins, things that even Christians can fall into, that we struggle against because the sin force wants to produce those in our life. But again, here it's the singular, the fruit of the Spirit. One fruit. It's like a composite fruit. A loving, joyful, peaceful, patient, continue-on person. That's what he wants to produce. Again, as one man said, the Spirit's fruit is always produced completely in every believer, no matter how faintly evidenced its various manifestations may be. He's talking about one fruit. In fact, I've got a fruit here. I'll use an apple. That is, if you're walking in the Spirit, according to verse 16, if you're led by the Spirit, according to verse 18, is produced in your life at that very moment. Now, if you're not walking in the Spirit, if you're not filled by a Spirit, if you're not letting the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, then at that moment, the Spirit's fruit is not being produced. That's why you can fall into the works of the flesh. But if, it's, but if, if you're walking in the Spirit, the, those manifestations, those representations of that one fruit will be produced. But they'll be produced in different variations. Like That's why I like this apple, because you see, well, if you're up here closer, you can see there's dark shades of red, light shades of red. There's some yellow, a little bit of green, a little bit of brown. You know, And some are deep, rich. Some are light, more superficial. The point is, is when I am walking with the Spirit, in the Spirit, when I'm being led, when I'm being filled and controlled, then there's a certain amount of love, a certain, but not perfect, not complete, only Christ is a complete manifestation, but there's a certain richness of love in my life, a certain richness of joy and peace, and the maturing process is to get those richer, all right, to get them more deep in your life. And by the way, some characteristics will be like this. You don't work from jo- love to then joy, then get that totally done, and then peace. For some of you, you have great peace but you find that gentleness is not that pronounced in your life. For some of you, it's love, it's love, but maybe it's not even a true biblical love. Maybe it's more of an emotional, but it's being developed in your life. But man, when you come to self-control, you just don't seem to have any. Well, you do, but it's a real light shade. You get my drift? See, in other words, God wants to bring these characteristics out in your life in a deeper, richer, more pronounced way. That's the maturing process. So again, just like if you think of one piece of fruit, especially something that has multi-color, think of your life like that. And then think of these characteristics and say, okay, so what has been developed in my life? You know, some of these I can really see, really deep. I can really see that God has produced joy in my life. I've gone through some hard times. He has proven himself to be true and there and trustworthy. And I've learned to trust him. And therefore that joy and peace is there. But sometimes I am just not kind when it comes to my own family. Well, he wants to draw out and make richer those other characteristics of gentleness and kindness and self-control. 
Really, today what we're going to look at is three of the nine characteristics, and we'll just break them apart. Uh, well, next week is Israel Cohen, and then the following is Resurrection Sunday, so we may not be back here for a couple, three weeks. By the way, let me say about Israel, I never really said, he, is, he reminds me over the phone, I've never met the man, but he reminds me over the phone like Lenny Oberfeld. Excitable, passionate, uh, I think he must be in his 70s because I think he's walked with the Lord around 50 years. Um, I just hope that you sign up. I mean, I, I really believe that that is going to be a great blessing. I think of it in one sense as like, because he's walked with the Lord so many years, I'm sure you're going to be able to see a, a lot of the, uh, the characteristics of the fruit in his life, just how he approaches God, his passion, his desire to want to serve him. So again, please try to be at all four services, sign up for the Passover um, Christ in the Passover. great thing about Christ in the Passover is every nuance of the Passover points directly to our Messiah, to Jesus Christ. Again, to be able to witness to, especially uh, a Jewish person, that's very, very important to know. Anyways, a fruit, singular. You know, when others think of you, do they think of the fruit of the Holy Spirit? You know, when your spouse or your parent or your sister or brother or your teacher or boss, your children, do do they think of the characteristics found here? Do they think of you as loving and joyful, peaceful, long-suffering, kind, goodness? Goodness has to do with uh, being constructive, even how you approach people. How about faithfulness, gentleness? Self-control. By the way, we're always tested. My wife reminded me this week that I was being tested. We, we had a little bit of a hard day. Yeah, you're preaching on the fruit of the Spirit, but show it! <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> By the way, these are attitude fruits. Less action, more attitude. Now, from attitude comes action, but really he's talking about heart motivation here. And again, the Holy Spirit produces this fruit. The fruit of, underline, of the Spirit. Remember last week, John 15, we looked at the vine. I am the the true vine. You're the branches. My father, he's the gardener. Remember that? What's the point of John 15? You have to abide, the, the word abide in me. And that was like used five or six times. The idea is you have to be connected with me through salvation. In other words, you've put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. Well, based on what he did on the cross, you are forgiven. That's part of abiding. You're connected with him. But it goes beyond that into you are also obedient. You are dependent on him. Okay? That's why he says, without me you can do nothing. You can't produce fruit on your own. But if you're connected with me through salvation, if you're dependent on me, daily life, if you're obedient, then you go from being fruitless to producing fruit, to producing more fruit. That's what John 15, he he uses the word fruit, but he puts different um, adjectives. It's not just fruit. There's some more fruit. There's much fruit. The whole point is he wants to keep producing. He wants to keep bringing out the, the depth of your love and the depth of your gentleness and the depth of your kindness and the depth of your joy. Some of us walk around, we have no peace. We watch TV too much. Too convinced of what the news says. By the way, the world is 
fracturing and coming apart. Do we believe that? But it doesn't mean that you can't have peace. By the way, the Lord reminds me of that often, especially this week. John, your peace is not determined by what Fox News says. Your, your peace is not even determined by what the weather is. Your peace is determined by my relationship with you. And maybe we miss out on that because we're not walking in the Spirit, because we're not filled and controlled. That's what the word filled means by the Spirit. You know, Colossians 3.16, you know, we talk a lot about the Spirit, but a synonymous text, and I keep bringing it up, I hope you get this, is Colossians 3.16 says, Let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. And the idea of richly means treasured. He's talking about the Bible. Let the Bible be treasured by the Christian. Let it be prized. Why? Because if it richly dwells, if it's at home, if the Word of God is in you, then it can produce its fruit. See, the the Spirit of God uses the Word of God. So when I say that you're controlled by the Spirit, what I'm saying is that you're filled, you're controlled by the Word of God. That the Word of God is richly at home with you. Have you ever had somebody, you know, this happens maybe during the summer, you know, somebody that you haven't seen for a while, maybe a relative, maybe a, a nephew, maybe an uncle. Hey, I'm coming through home in New York. I'd like to stay with you for a couple of days. Yeah, yeah, that's great. That's what you say on the phone after you get off the phone. Oh, honey, you know who's coming. I can't believe they're going to be staying here for three days. How are we going to survive this? Oh, you know, and you just kind of like, whatever. And you finally, yeah, they, you get them out the door by Friday afternoon. And when they leave, you're like, aren't you glad they're gone? That is not what we're talking about in Colossians 3. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. It's saying that you prize. I am so... Versus the other person that calls. Hey, I'm going to come by for a couple days. Only can be there for two. Can we... Oh, love to have you. Yes. Honey, guess who's coming? Yes. That's how the word of God should be. As far as residence. Yes. I have the Word, and I want to listen to the Word, and I want to obey the Word, and I want to walk with God because it's found in the Word of God. So that's what it means to richly dwell within you, Colossians 3.16. See, it's one thing for the believer to be in the Word. It's another for the Word to have free access to all parts of his life. It's two different things. It's one thing to be in the Word. It's another thing for it to have it, it richly dwell within. Oh, I just, I just want to learn another truth so I can walk with Him closer. It's not, it's not a bothersome deed. So again, when we say walking in the Spirit, we are talking about completely relying on the Spirit for every aspect and knowing that He uses His, his Scriptures to do that. It means to be conscious of Him. And when we come across a principle, we're quick to obey that principle. It's not just about knowing a lot of facts. It's saying, I want to see Him work. I want to obey His Word. I want Him to guide me. I want Him to lead me. I want to sense His power. Isn't it great? Have you ever had this situation? And probably you've had it many, many times. You get bad news, frustrating. You try to work things out, irritations, probably anger associated with it. Then the Lord starts, you don't have my peace. You finally break. Lord, forgive me, called repentance. Lord, fill me, use me. And all of a sudden, peace. By the way, nothing's changed in your circumstance. The only thing that's changed is your relationship of God's power in your life. 
And the peace that passes all understanding guards your heart. Right? Doesn't that happen over and over again? We go back and forth. We can do it on our own. What did Jesus say? Without me, you can do nothing. You can't do it. You can't produce this peace. You can't produce this joy. You cannot produce this love. So again, walking in the Spirit found in verse 16, which leads up to verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit, means that you're in obedience to, relying on, trusting in the Spirit of God. You're walking with Him. By the way, it's not like a partnership. You're obeying Him. He's the one that's actually producing it. We have a very small part in it. I don't even like calling it a partnership. So again, the fruit of the Spirit is an outward indicator Really, of the fact that you're even saved. If you say, you know what, I don't see any of this in my life, you'd have to say, you're not a believer. But these are nine characteristics making up one. Making up one. Real important that we see the one. And and also see that it takes time. See, some of you say, well, I don't seem to have any peace, but, you know, there's a shade of it there. See, sometimes I give it, I'm a perfectionist. I don't see enough of it. Well, you know, then, all right, I'll produce it. But it may be a little painful. But it takes time. When James Garfield, later to become the President of the United States, was principal of Hurham College in Ohio, one father asked him, again, this is when he's the principal, one of the uh, fathers of one of the sons, uh, one of the boys that were going there, asked him, hey, listen, can you shorten the time of my son's study? Can you just give them what the essentials are and get them out three years instead of four? Certainly, Garfield replied, but it all depends on what you want to make of your boy. When God wants to make an oak, it takes him a hundred years. When he wants to make a squash, it only requires two months. <laughs> Do you just want to be a squash? <laughs> you want, what, am I, what I'm saying is this. Do you just want it to be superficial? I think sometimes we're looking for superficial. I want joy, but wait, do you really want the, uh, the true joy? Then there's things that we have to be taken through. You know, when it comes to a squash, only a couple months, they didn't, most squash don't see the big storms. Most oaks do. By the way, it's when the oak goes through the storm that the fibers stretch and actually makes it a better tree. By the way, do you want trials? I don't. I'm not saying I want trials, but what I am saying is this. Can we trust God, our Heavenly Father, to filter in our life the things that are needed? And He allows certain things, but it's all Father-filtered. He allows certain things. And in the end, we do say together, all things work together for good. But see, it's hard. This is hard. This is hard stuff. I want the peace and joy, but I don't want the trials and circumstance to change. But sometimes it, it needs to change. Because it's like that oak. It needs to be stretched. It needs to many times be stretched to the limit. So again, the fruit of the Spirit. Well, let's look at three of them. Some have tried to divide these nine up into three categories. They say, well, love, joy, peace is how we deal with God. And long-suffering kindness and goodness is how we deal uh, with ourselves. Actually, with others. And then the last is with ourselves. I'm not sure if I really buy into all that. Um, I don't see what the need is. It might be there somewhat. I do know this. It's one. <laughs> it's, all, it's all represent of one fruit. But again, what is love? It's, a, it's the word agape. By the way, it's the dominant characteristic. In Corinthians 13, you see some of these characteristics. Love is. 
Okay? So it's kind of like the dominant in one sense and yet part of. Now, we've already seen this word in verse 13. Uh, if you just go back a few verses, it says, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Do not use your liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. And actually, back then, which was a couple months ago, I guess, we did quite an extensive study on this. But it's through love that we serve. Look at verse 14. For all the love is, for, excuse me, all the law is fulfilled in one word, even this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Okay? The whole law is fulfilled in this one word, love. And we find in Corinthians 13, 13, now faith, now by this faith, hope, and love, these three, but the greatest is what? Love. I mean, this is the characteristic, and out of this flows other things, apparently. But again, what is love? And I gave you three fill-ins. Love is sacrificial and selfless. Sacrificial and selfless. It's self-giving service, if you will. Or give me, let me give you a fuller definition. Love is the selfless and enduring commitment of the will, again, not emotion, not feeling necessarily, to care about and benefit another person by thoughts, words, and actions. Okay, it's... It's being willing to care about another person and not just feel about it. You know, have you ever felt like helping someone but didn't do it? Love does it. In fact, that brings us to the second thing. It's not only selfless and sacrificial, it's active. That's the second feeling. Love is active. It's not abstract. It's not passive. It's not just good feelings. It does something. If you say, I love, it means you're doing something. And again, we see that it's, that's consistent in Corinthians 13. Love is, all those characteristics are verbs. Love is patient. Love is kind. Makes sense. It's sacrificial. It's selfless. It's active. But this is the one I want to uh, key in on. Love is supernatural. Supernatural. In other words, where does it come from? It comes from God. In fact, one guy said this, in the Bible, it is the association of agape, of love, with God, that word agape being associated with God, that gives the word its distinctive character. It's not this general term, it's associated with God. The, the key passage is 1 John, you don't have to turn there, 1 John 4, 7. Beloved, in other words, Christian, let us love one another, for love is of God. There's that word of again. It's of God. You didn't produce it of your own. You weren't just like a loving person. No, love is of God. And everyone who is born of God and knows God, and everyone who is, excuse me, and everyone who loves is born of God and, know, and knows God. If you love, it be, it's because you've been born of Him and know Him. See, some of us, before we were saved, would be considered a loving person. But that's not God's type of love. Because God's love is supernatural. It's sacrificial. It's selfless. It's active. But it's supernatural. If you know an unsaved person, and they're really a nice person, maybe a very loving person, that's not even the type of love we're talking about. Because this is produced by God. I'm not saying what they have is bad. All I'm saying is, this is a higher level. Which is... This is where we might get into a, a fix because we may say, well, man, before I was saved, I was a loving person. I didn't have much joy or peace, but I was loving. God says, you know what? That's a lower love. I need to bring it up. And sometimes it's that nice, loving person before salvation that doesn't depend on God. Do you see why? Because, well, I'm, I kind of meet that standard. 
No, no. This is the characteristic of God. For God is love. It's, it's the thing that characterizes Him. He is a loving God. That's what He manifests. He loves. I have a hard time grappling with that. I can understand God is just. I can understand He is holy. I can understand even mercy. I, I have a hard time wrapping my arms around that He is loving. I'm not saying He isn't, and I'm not saying I don't believe it. Sometimes it's hard for me to believe what I believe. I, I, it's just, that's so... Really, I know that it's true, but it's it's an area that I've had to grow in, that God is actually love. Everything he does is out of a loving heart. That's hard. That's hard for me to grapple with. Well, let's look at this divine love. I think I gave you some verses. First of all, it's unmerited. Divine love is unmerited. Romans 5.8, God demonstrated his own love towards us in that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. He demonstrated his love that while we're yet sinners, while we were haters of him, he demonstrated his love towards us and he sent Christ to die for us. Not only that, Ephesians says, but God who is rich in mercy because of, now catch this, of his great love with which he loved us. Great. I guess I, you know, I've read that verse many times, but it never stuck out like his love is great. It's unbelievable. It's big. Romans 5 says, Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who, has, who was given to us. This love is poured into our hearts. See, He doesn't only have great love, but He pours it into our heart. That's, which means it's transforming. It transforms us. At nature, actually, we're selfish. In fact, a lot of times when people say they're good people, many times it's very manipulative type love. But here... That's why God needs to pour it into our hearts. We can't do it on our own. And Romans 8 says, well, what should separate us from the love of Christ? Can anything separate us from the love of Christ? And the answer at the end is no. Nothing, nothing at all can separate us from the love of Christ. In fact, he says this, For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come. I don't know what your trial is today. I don't know what your hardship is today. But sometimes we think that things can separate us from his love towards us. But he says, Nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. By the way, that love of God is found in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's only as you are placed in Christ Jesus at salvation that the love of God overshadows. So you say, well, I don't know that what you're talking about as far as relationship with him. If you haven't recognized that you're a sinner and that your sin condemns you and separates you and the wrath of God is on you, and if you haven't ran to the cross, as it were, and believed on what Christ has done on the cross and dying for sinners, and if you haven't put your faith and trust in Him, then you're not in the body. And you can't say, the love of God will overwhelm me. But again, if you're a Christian, if you've put your faith and trust in Him, you've been brought into the family, you're in Christ, and the love of God can, will make it so nothing can separate you from the love of God. I mean, just that alone. <laughs> I don't know. Sometimes, you know, we walk around, oh, so many stresses, so many pressures. Wait a second, nothing can separate me from the love of God. <laughs> That's the good news. Okay, we're dismissed. <laughs> enough to think about. Really, that is enough to think about. I'm kidding about dismiss, but that is enough to think about. 
Isn't it? Isn't that really enough to think about? That nothing can separate? If you're in Christ, if you, have, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, I don't care what your pressure and stress and hurt and anxiety and trial and circumstances, nothing can separate you from God. Again, Christ died for us, and now we are... The, our, his love is poured into us and we are told to love, to love God, to love each other. That's the mark of the believer. And to even love our neighbor. In fact, Matthew said this, that you shall love... This is what Jesus told the people that were, he was teaching. You've heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Because that was their idea. See, you love your neighbor, but anybody that's an enemy, you hate them. Try to kill them, destroy them. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who spitefully use and persecute you. So again, this love is a supernatural love because we're not talking about being loving just to those people who are nice. By the way, who's in your life right now that's not nice? That you are irritated with, angry perhaps with, frustrated with, you even have a tendency to want to hate. Who's that in your life? And God says, listen, if you're a believer in me, nothing can separate my love for you. And my love has been poured out into your heart. And I want to supernaturally transform your heart to even love him or to even love her. This is tough stuff. This is hard stuff. See, we can talk about love, but then there's that person that I'm irritated with, I'm angry with. And God says, that's what I want to change. That's the point of transformation I want to do in your heart. But there's another type of love. Go to 1 Corinthians 3. It's not another type of love, but another application, not only to your enemy, but to your brother. 1 John 3, 16. 1 John 3, 16. <coughs> We'll go to verse 18. By this we know love. Now this is how we know love. This is how we can identify it. Because he, he, Christ, laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? Now this is a real practical one. You say you love. You say you're part of the family. You see a brother in need. And yet you withhold? How does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue. You know, I love. I really love. I just love you so much. Mm. But in deed and in truth. Or as one guy said, a person who thinks his love is great enough to sacrifice his life for his fellow believers, but who fails to help them when they have less extreme needs, is simply fooling himself. I see a person, especially a Christian, in a struggle, in a financial struggle. And I say, be of good cheer. And I move them on. And by the way, it might not just be a financial. A Christian in a struggle. Let's just, you can eat, I mean, the money is the least of these things. But there's other things. But you see a person in need, whether it's financial or otherwise. And we only are willing to say a good word, but not actually help meet the need. How does the love of God dwell in us? How does the love? Again, we need to not be... T- Sometimes we're tempted only to do the words. I would ask you two major questions. First of all, 
Is there an enemy in your life, someone frustrating you, and you are not showing love to? Ask God to supernaturally change your heart. He's poured love into your heart that you would show to that person. The other is, as far as believers, is there a time when you know that you should be doing something, but you're doing nothing? It's only word. He says, listen, I want it to be a deed. It might actually be writing a check. It might be sending a note. It might be calling the person. It might be visiting the person. What is it? Because again, money is just the least. But from there, all kinds of things should happen as far as our actions towards other believers. What's interesting is over the years, uh, how many people sacrificed for others? Love. In extreme ways. Think of some of these. Carrie in India. Carrie had to actually leave his family for a good amount of his life. Some of you would agree, disagree. The point is he loved them. That's why he went. Judson in Burma. Hudson Taylor in China. Bernard Brainerd among the Indians. Patton among the terrible cannibals of the New Hebrides. Can you imagine being around cannibals? In fact, I remember, I think the one story was he had to literally sit on his wife's grave so the cannibals wouldn't dig her up. I mean, the point is he had love to go. George Mueller among the orphans of England. Christian love not only has sought to save men's souls, but also to build hospitals, asylums, leper colonies, orphanages, home for the aged. This guy goes on, he says, Love sent William Booth to the drunks and derelicts of London slums. Love led William Wilberforce to strike the blow that freed the slaves in Britain's vast domains. Love let, sent Lord Shaftesbury to the factories and mines and then to the House of Lords to demand an end to child abuse and harsh labor laws. When all else fails, love never fails. Christianity is Christ. Christ is God and God is love. Christianity is love in action. The fruit of the Spirit is love. In other words, we should be driven to do more than just, even to more than just pray, though we should pray. We need to be active. What is God calling you to do? By the way, the great thing is this. What God calls you to do will be different from me. Don't, com don't condemn me for not being passionate about what God has called you to do. Do you see that? In other words, Wilberforce didn't say, well, you should all be concerned about the slaves. Well, you should be, but I'm going to be the one that deals with this part of it. But you, you know, Mueller, you deal with the orphans type of thing. We all do our own thing. But we all do it out of love. Well, let's go to the second one. How about uh, joy? What's your joy level? It's the word kara. Again, a divine fruit. It's similar to happiness, like this world, the secular world will say happiness on like the surface. But this is the difference. Joy is not dependent upon circumstance. That's the point. It's used numerous times, like 70 times in the scripture. So it's over and over again. One author said this, Joy always signifies a feeling of happiness that is based not on circumstance, but on spiritual realities. Joy in my spiritual reality. Joy because I have been forgiven. Joy because I do not have to face hell. I do not have to face the wrath of God. Joy because I am a child of God. Joy because I am justified. I am reconciled to the Father. He is my Father. Some spiritual reality. So it's that deep down sense of well-being that abides in the heart of the person who knows that all is well between himself and his Lord. 
Isn't that great? I love that. I love that definition. Everything is well between God and me. There's not a problem between God and myself. If there was a problem, then I shouldn't have joy. In fact, this word is never used of an unbeliever that I can find. It's always a believer, because only a believer can have true joy. Everything is well. Now again, this word is used as a gift, and I don't mean a spiritual gift, but in other words, something that God gives, like in John 15, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you. My joy would remain in you. That's, see, that's a transfer. This joy is not something that I manufacture, it's something that's given to me. But it's also a command. Remember when Paul said in the Philippians, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say what? Rejoice. That's a command, that's an imperative. In other words, it's something God gives, but it's also something I'm commanded to do. But Lord, I can't do it. I can't manufacture on my own. You're right, but if you walk with me, you can have it. How's your level of joy? John 16, it's also connected with prayer. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive that your joy may be full. Part of joy is the connected with prayer. You ask what you need, God gives it, there's joy. But it's not associated with circumstance. Even in Hebrews 12, it says uh, of Christ, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Same word. What do you mean? The most horrendous death of mankind on the cross of the perfect Son of God, he endured it with joy. Yeah, because he saw that through the cross, he could bring you who are believers to himself. So even though the circumstance was there, he looked beyond the circumstance to the end result. That's why our joy can be full, because we don't look at the... Our eyes are not here. It's on the, the end product. I think that's why often this is used in an imperative. Like uh, when Jesus saw the disciples after his resurrection in Matthew 28, he said this in a command, Rejoice! He told them, Rejoice! I think there's a, there was a tendency in their heart not to rejoice. There's a tendency, by the way, in our hearts not to rejoice. Often in Scripture you, you see, in fact, uh, when the angel came to Mary, he said again, Rejoice, highly favored one. He did use the verb, rejoice. Why? Well, yes, you're pregnant. Can you imagine that? An unmarried, young Jewish girl finds out she's going to be pregnant. He first thing he says, rejoice. Because about what I'm going to tell you is going to be hard. You're going to have to keep your eyes on God. Rejoice. Uh, Paul in Corinthians 13 said, Finally, brethren, Farewell. It's the same word. Rejoice. Be, be complete. Be comforted. Be of one mind. Live in peace. That's what he ends. But he, he tells them, listen, rejoice. I think, if, I think that's how God would want us to. I mean, I should this, rejoice. Did you come here joyful? You need to leave joyful. What do you mean? Are you a believer? Yes. Rejoice. Well, uh, you don't understand the pressures. It's in Christ. Focus on the spiritual realities. Get your eyes off of the present. You've got to get beyond the present. I know that is very difficult. John, I can't produce it. That's right. It's the fruit of the Spirit. It's part of the fruit. By the way, we can have counterfeit joy. I want you to hear this. You can have counterfeit joy. Just like you can have counterfeit love. What is counterfeit love? Limited love. 
I didn't even say that, I don't think. But that's what counterfeit love is. It's when it's limited. It's when it's limited. There's other forms of counterfeit. Time doesn't allow us. But here, there's counterfeit joy too. It, see, it depends on what you base your joy on or your supposed joy. Do you base it on the moment, the circumstance, the physical comforts that you are? Do you base it on your health or wealth? I'm saying this seriously. Do you base it on the weather? I think I found myself talking about the weather too much. What does that matter compared to spiritual realities? Do you get my point? Sometimes I base my joy on the, the circumstances of the political scene. Whether they pass a budget or not shouldn't change my joy. I'm, sometimes it's very superficial. Our joy is based on a relationship with God. So then it doesn't have to do with good times or visible results. Doesn't have to, doesn't, it doesn't, it's not affected by whether or not you made the sale or you didn't or your relationship with your people or, you know. By the way, when you make a sale or you're, everything's going great in your family, those are times of rejoicing. But the joy we're talking about is it's, it's directly related to our relationship with Jesus Christ and God the Father. James Boyce said this, Joy, this type of joy is particularly full when what was lost spiritually is found. In other words, the way you get this joy is by, by having a fuller and fuller understanding of all the spiritual realities you have in Christ. That's how you bring out the fullness, the richness of this particular characteristic. If you go to Luke 15, there's illustration of three things that were lost. Luke 15. Luke 15. First of all, we have a lost sheep. In verse 4, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost and try to find it? Look at verse 5. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. That's the word, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls his friends uh, together, his friends, his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep which was lost. I say to you that likewise, now, now this, is the, this is the teaching here, not about the sheep. I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. He's talking about the self-righteous. The one is the true believer. But he says, listen, when a true believer repents, that's when there's joy in heaven. How about the lost coin, verse 8 through 10? Or what woman having ten silver coins, if, he lo- if she loses one, doesn't light a lamp, sweep the house, search carefully until she finds it? Okay, well, bottom line, she finds it. And look at this, verse 9. Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I lost. Likewise, here's the lesson. I say to you, there is, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. The fact that you are a believer or a, a sinner who repents, that's what brings joy. And then it comes to the most famous of the, the parables, the prodigal. And you know the story. He leaves. And then he comes home. Where is it? Verse 32, I believe. Yeah, verse 32. It was right that we should make merry and be glad. That's the word rejoice. That's the same word. For your brother was dead. In other words, he was gone from us and is alive again and was lost and is found. Now think, this is the reality. We were found. We were rescued. And the angels in heaven were rejoicing. 
I mean, they were rejoicing, and yet sometimes these same spiritual realities don't hit us here, and that's why we lose our joy. No, it's, it's that we are right with God. In other words, what primarily brings you joy? Is it something outward, or is it the inward relationship you have with the Father? That's the, that's the source of joy. And, and the question I had is just like with love, do my kids see that joy in my life? Well, based on some of the things my wife said this week, I guess not at all times. See, you need a good wife to speak truth to you. Sometimes she kind of doesn't play the Holy Spirit, but the Spirit uses her. No, I don't think sometimes I show that joy. My mind, my eyes get focused on circumstance. And there's a lot of stuff that's out there that can blur your true vision of heaven. So joy, joy is that, that exhilaration of knowing that you are right with God. And then finally, peace. And this will be very quick. Peace. Again, it's a gift, but it's also commanded. Like in John 14, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. Not as the world do I give you peace. Not as the world gives peace do I give it to you. Okay? See, the world gives, but it's in a different way. I give you a different type of peace. But then the second part of John 14 says, let not your heart be troubled. That's the opposite of peace. See, peace is the tranquility of mind that comes from that saving relationship with God. It's a settledness. It's, it's, it's knowing everything is okay. It's a calmness. That's not how the world... The world says, I can give you peace, but it's all based on circumstance. As soon as circumstance change, peace changes. God's, Jesus says, I'm going to give you peace, but it's not like that. It's not like this. Up and down, up and down, up and down, depending on the news or whatever you're thinking of. God's peace is very consistent. It's it's the form of shalom. That's why they would... uh, Shalom, why? Remember, God's peace. God's peace. God's joy. Again, has nothing to do with circumstance. If joy speaks of the exhilaration of heart that comes from being right with God... Peace refers to the tranquility and peace of mind that comes from that saving relationship with God. So there's this exhilaration and tranquility. Exhilaration, joy, tranquility, peace. Yes, I'm saved! Ah, And everything is okay. Everything is okay. Life may be falling apart as the world would see it, but everything is okay. My life is tranquil. You have that tranquility? You have that tranquility. You know, five times in the New Testament, God is referred to as the God of peace. He brings peace. He is not only a God of love. He is not only one who proclaims joy. He is the one who proclaims peace. I am actually the God of peace. I'm going to take a chaotic... By the way, we weren't at peace with God. We were at enmity with God. But as Romans says, chapter 5, verse 1... Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the peacemaker. He's the one that stepped forward. He's the one that sent his son. He's the one that established peace with us. So we have peace with God. And as we have peace with God, then we can have the peace of God. This is the last verse I can read. 
Philippians 4, many of you know it by heart. Many of you have studied this over and over again. Remember, Philippians 4 is premised on the fact of Romans 5, 1 has already happened, the peace of God. Or excuse me, peace with God has already happened so you can have the peace of God. Philippians 4, be anxious for nothing. How many of you are anxious? See, anxiety is the opposite of peace. Don't be anxious for anything, but in everything, what? By prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Now, see, there's something you have to do. It's not just like, hmm, no, you're just going to sit there looking foolish. You've got to do something. Prayer, supplication, thanksgiving. Let your request be made known to God. What's, what's bothering you? Is it that person, that circumstance, that trial? Maybe you just have to actually say, Lord, I am angry, and part of my angry is anger is towards you. But go to him. We have a tendency to run from God as though by saying it, he doesn't know. Let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. Meaning just surpasses what we can understand. Because right now I'm at this, mm, we'll guard your heart and mind through Christ. We'll pick that up next week. But the point is, is you can go from chaotic anxiety, worried fear, to peace by saying, Lord, I need to walk with you. I need to be led by you. Oh, I've been trying to figure this out, and you know when I try to figure things out, I mess up all kinds of relationships around me. I'm saying that personally. Because I'm trying to figure things out, and God says, no, you need to walk with me. I'll give you my peace. But you can't superficially manufacture it. I think this is a good example of true peace. Eric Baker was a missionary from Great Britain who had spent over 50 years in Portugal preaching the gospel, often under adverse conditions. During World War II, the situation became so critical that he took the advice to send his wife and eight children to England for safety. A wife and eight kids. His sister and her three children were also evacuated on the same ship. So how many is that? Three, eight, nine, twelve, thirteen? A lot of people. Baker, Barker, excuse me, remained behind to conclude some mission matters. The Sunday after Barker's loved ones had left, he stood before the congregation and said, quote, I've just received word that all my family have arrived safely home. He then proceeded with the service as usual. Later, the full meaning of his words became known to his people. He had been handed a wire just before the meeting, informing him that a submarine had torpedoed the ship and everyone on board had drowned. Barker knew that all on board were believers, and the knowledge that his, his own family was enjoying the bliss of heaven enabled him to live above his circumstance in spite of his overwhelming grief. Let me say again what he told that congregation before knowing the full story. I've just received word that all my family have arrived safely home. Yeah, they had arrived safely home. But it wasn't to the shores of the United States, it was to the shores of heaven. See, because his eyes were set on heaven, knowing the true value, he was able to even do what he, under tremendous grief, be able to preach God's word. Why? Because he was looking at spiritual realities. That's what gave him the peace. That's what gave him the joy. And I trust in your own life that our eyes would be set on spiritual realities. Let's stand as we... Praise Him.